Just to give a bit of background, so today's sermon called Here Comes the Bride. Um, and this is following on in part of a series that we've been giving, uh, which we started in January and it's going to be continuing uh, throughout this term and towards the summer, uh, where we're looking at the fivefold ministries um, and how they equip that these are gifts to the church uh, for the equipping of the church and so that the church walks in all the fullness that God has for it of apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. Um, and so this is a theme that we've been looking at, and we've started off by looking at how we, the foundation for these, the initial building block that you have to have in place, not as a hierarchy, but as, a, as a kind of an order of how things are built, is the foundations of apostles and prophets. And then we're going to be looking through the rest of the fivefold gifts later on in the term. Incidentally, there's a good podcast on this from Chris Vallotton, which is his podcast I believe released this week, uh, which I'd recommend to you. It's just called The Power of the Fivefold Ministry. If you want a quick summary of that in about a 45-minute podcast uh, and you're not feeling like you've got time to catch up with all the rest of the sermons, that's your cheat sheet right there. Okay, so go for that. But obviously you've got the other podcasts and the other teaching that's been available through Eastgate and through the website. And so, looking at apostolic and prophetic foundations, uh, one of the things that we particularly have highlighted uh, was a prophecy from, given from Graham Cook last year, which, if you were here a few weeks ago, we listened to that as a church. That's also available through the Dream Revolution app, uh, which you can have for free, and you can listen to that. There's a PDF file of that. And we'd encourage you just to uh, spend some time with that, uh, in that prophecy is something that we weigh together. We decide how much weight we attach to that. And so, very much with heart that we value prophecy and we believe that this is a significant word. Now, just to clarify that, we, we value prophecy, we, we preach the Bible. Okay? Graham Cook would be the first to say that his prophetic word is not on a par or not on the same level of authority with Scripture. Uh, and we would agree with him on that. We hold the Bible up as having the ultimate authority. However, we also believe that that does not contain all of God and that God is still actively speaking, and that often through um, prophetic words, God is highlighting aspects of his character that he wishes to reveal in a specific season, or he is pointing his people towards more specific courses of action. And so Graham Cook's word is one that we've been weighing together, um, and that we're looking together, and that we are preaching off the back of some of the themes that have emerged from that. So a couple of weeks ago, Dad spoke on habitation, not visitation, uh, of expecting God's presence with us always, of not just that he turns up for an occasional visit, but that he is always with us, that his presence is with us day in, day out, and that we can learn to live in that environment. And then Donna spoke last week on how the old man is dead and how we're new creations in Christ. So title of the sermon last week was The Old Man is Dead, Stop Walking in the Graveyard. This week, looking at the Bride of Christ. Here comes the Bride. Me and Donna are thinking of packaging those two in a sermon series entitled Four Weddings and a Funeral. And uh, we're going to, we think that could really take off. Um, uh, and um, I'm going to run that by the media guys afterwards as well. In his prophecy, Graham Cook speaks about the body, he talks about certain keys to be able to understand the prophecy. If you've looked at the PDF file, these are listed at the top, where he gives, these are the keys, almost like your headline figures, your, your summary things, the particular points of emphasis. And one of them he talks about 
It says, the body becoming the bride who is the betrothed with power. Just say that again. The body becoming the bride who is the betrothed with power. Now, there are a number of metaphors in Scripture that describe the church, that are ways of looking at God's people. Okay? And examples of this include describing the church as the body of Christ in 1 Corinthians 12, or as a holy temple made of living stones. That's Ephesians 2, it's 1 Peter. Okay? And another method, metaphor is the bride of Christ, where Scripture portrays the relationship between God and his people as like a marriage, where God is madly in love with us and us with him. And you need both pictures. There's a reason that God picked different ways and different illustrations and different metaphors for illustrating his relationship with people and how he works. It's so, partly so that we don't ever feel that we've entirely got a handle on how God operates. As that's really important. If ever, you, if ever you think you can see God just through one lens, you, you've got that wrong. God is bigger than that. And God is always bigger than our understanding. And, and God is infinite but he portrays himself and his relationship through different uh, lenses, through different metaphors, to, so that we can help, and it helps our understanding. And you need both pictures. The body of Christ. Christ is head of the church. We're the body that represents him on earth. He is the head, he is Lord. What he says goes. But also we are his partner. We are his bride. We are his beloved. We are his, and he is ours. And he is passionately in love with his people. This is a marriage. And so we're not abandoning the idea of the church as the body of Christ, but coming to a greater revelation of our identity as God's bride, as his beloved, of knowing that we are treasured by him, that the church is desirable. And that at the end of history, God returns to marry his beloved. And that we corporately enjoy that status together as his bride that we are treasured. So I'll just read out another section from the prophecy. It says, The beloved must become who I say she is, not what anyone allows her to be. You are the bride being prepared for the king of promise. The bride is being revealed in the likeness of Esther. There is a promise of beauty, grace, and power that will be huge and majestic as the body steps into the bride. The world will see the beloved rising up in the earth. The evidence that you represent the kingdom will be that you are living fully in the new man in Christ so that you will have constant upgraded responses regardless of circumstances. I think often the church has got to grips with being the body of Christ. I think often we've had that with quite a functional mentality. One body, many parts. Yeah, we, we, okay, we recognize, oh yeah, we're different. We preached on this. Different, but equal, equally valuable. But I think sometimes the church has tended to have that with a functional mentality. One body, many parts. You need the different parts with their different skills and giftings to get the job done. Because that's the important bit. What's the, what's the church here? It's to get the job done. Okay? And you need the varying different gifts and skill mixes to make all of that happen. You need... Preachers, you need worship leaders. The two of us don't often overlap due to singing voices and things like this. All right? You need all of these different parts. And this is absolutely true. You do need the different gifts, as evidenced by a preaching series on the fivefold ministries. 
So we are not denying that. Okay? However, we need to add to that another picture of being the bride, of being a united, beautiful, mature church that God loves and delights in, one that he is looking to partner with through all eternity. Because we, the church, are God's people, are his wonderful bride. I actually believe that this, this bit and what Graham Cook is speaking into and what God is breathing on is building on revelation that God has been given over the last 10 years or so. In that the father heart of God has been something that has been showing to us over the last decade, where Christians have been learning to embrace our status as sons, not just as servants, where we know our royal identity and the depths of intimacy and authority that spring from that. And this is on the individual level, where God says to you personally, you are my child and I delight in you. And I think that's why songs like I'm no longer a slave to fear, I am a child of God, really have been gripping people over that season. Not just because they're brilliantly written songs, although yes they are, but I think because the reason that that song's had such an impact is that that has tapped into one of the things that God is revealing about himself in this season, that he is revealing more of his heart in that. And that he's putting across to us, one to one, that you are beloved children, that God delights in you, that there is no striving, that you are royal, that you have status, that you are treasured. And I believe that God now is bringing a similar revelation at a corporate level, where he says to the people, the church, you are my bride and I delight in you. I think that one of the things that God is wanting to say to his people in this season is the significance of his gathered people, of community, of the church, of our collective response to him and what he does among us and through us as a people as well as individuals. I believe that just as we've had that revelation personally, you are a child and I delight in you. God is now bringing that revelation corporately to the church, to the gathered people of God, where he says, you are the bride and I treasure you. I believe that when the church embraces its identity as the bride of Christ, there will be an outpouring of blessing through the church that will change society, that will bring transformation to this nation and to Europe and beyond, that the kingdom of God is expressed through his church with limitless potential, and that as we embrace the idea that God not only treasures us individually, but that he treasures us corporately, that there is an increase in authority and anointing that both breeds an increase in intimacy in our encounters with God together as a gathered people, but also increases our impact and our ability to bring the kingdom as the church of God. Thank you, Dave. That's where I'm going. I'm hoping that... uh, Maybe by the end of the morning, you, you, you'll be with me on that. I, just, I don't want to move off that spot. I, I, I think that's the key thing. When I've been praying about this and when God just highlighted that to me, I felt that, to me, is what God is breathing on. And so I invite us now, before I say anything else, just to dwell on that. Would you just open your hearts and your spirits and just... We do this together. I think that one of the things that we're increasingly aware of and that God has been saying is the, the value of, um, of committed communal Christianity. It's a good, uh, good alliterative there. Uh, 
But, all right, let's just, let's just ask God just to breathe on that now. So, Holy Spirit, we just ask that you come amongst us. God, we delight in being your people. We delight in being your bride of the intimacy that we enjoy with you. Thank you that you are amongst us, that you never leave us. Holy Spirit, just ask for a greater revelation of the passion that you have for us as your people, as your church. God, for a greater sense of corporate identity, of being together, of being family, of being your body, of being your bride, of being the treasured people of of God, of being your chosen vehicle for the outworking of your kingdom on planet Earth. Yeah. Yeah. God, we choose to partner with you as a people. God, we thank you that you love us, that you call each of us individually by name, but that you also set us in a people that you call us together to be part of a glorious community, that your heart has been for people from day one. And just pray for an increase in that, pray for an increased level of faith in our expectation of encountering you together, of being mutually encouraged, and of you just coming and dwelling amongst us. I just pray for an increase in expectation of all that you will do through us. Through the local church, through the global church, to bring transformation to the world. Yeah. Woo. Yeah, I've just prayed myself happy. I don't know about you. (laughs) This is God's uh, heart for a people it is constant. You see this throughout Scripture. And the idea that that is a covenant, intimate relationship runs throughout the Bible. It's not just a New Testament concept. God constantly and consistently reminds his people of the nature of his relationship with them, of the covenant promises between them and his love for them. Numerous times through the prophets in the Old Testament, God compares his relationship to Israel to that of a marriage, declaring himself to be their husband. In Isaiah 54, verse 5, he says, For your maker is your husband, the Lord Almighty is his name, the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer, he is called the God of all the earth. God repeatedly calls Israel to remember who they are and who they are in relationship with. The sense of God's pain when Israel is unfaithful to him, is put across in terms of Israel being an unfaithful bride who pursues illicit relationships with other gods. Most dramatic examples of that probably in Hosea, who God told to marry an adulterous wife to illustrate Israel's unfaithfulness to him. Anyone here glad you haven't had that calling? David Webster actually preached on this previously. You can find the sermons back on the website. It's, uh, it was in 2016, if you track back uh, through our preaching series. There's an interesting preaching, uh, a couple of sermons on Hosea that David handled, where it's looking at that God's basic saying, don't break my heart. Saying, I'm passionate about you, and you're running away. And there's time and time again where, where God kind of brings up that trope of, He is the passionate husband for his people. 
and he's longing for them just to show that same passion towards him in return. And then we get this um, same message in Jeremiah of God as a husband to his people repeated, but with a promise to put a new covenant in place and make forgiveness and restoration possible. I'll read it out. It's from Jeremiah 31. If you want to turn to it. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. God is husband. Covenant's broken. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, Know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. It's this wonderful promise which we've inherited, where we have the law of God on our hearts, where we have that covenant relationship with him, where all of us can say, I know the Lord, where we together can say, We know the Lord. It's a wonderful picture of restored relationship which brings us on to the new covenant recorded in the New Testament where the church, the global church, the people of God are now described as the bride. Now, the specific term, the bride of Christ, is not actually found uh, in, in those words as such in the Bible. Okay? If, you, if you go to Bible Gateway or wherever you find your scriptures and Google that exact phrase, um, you won't find that exact term, but there are numerous examples where the metaphor of being a bride is used to describe the church and God's people. So first off, always important to start with Jesus, where Jesus describes himself as the bridegroom. The Pharisees come to Jesus and say, why aren't your followers fasting? And Jesus basically says, how can they fast when the bridegroom's here? It's party time. <laughs> There's an excitement there. And Jesus describes himself in those terms. He's the bridegroom. He's the groom. In 2 Corinthians 2, Paul puts it across to the church where he says, I promised you to one husband, and that's Christ. Where this idea, that committed, passionate relationship of a community towards Jesus. And then there are other examples where the bridal metaphor is used. Because Paul always takes the relationship of Jesus towards his people as our pattern for human relationships. It's always in that order. And so in Ephesians 5, we see that our example of love as to how husbands should behave in marriage is to follow the example of Christ, who gave himself for the church. It says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and present her to himself as a radiant church, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. Take a moment just to consider those words because this is God's desire for his church. Holy, radiant, and blameless. Do they convey to you the idea that Jesus has high hopes for his people? (laughs) That he has high ambition? He views this as a passionate relationship. No one ever goes into marriage going, you know what, I hope my spouse will be okay. Yeah, you'll do. Um, (laughs) no people go into marriage with the idea of going you know what this person's amazing and I want to know more and more how amazing this person is and that's Jesus' hope for his church where he says he has high aspirations for the church 
You are called to be a radiant church that shines the light of God and displays it to the nations. That is your calling. That is part of what is on us as a people. And then Revelation talks about the wedding feast of the Lamb and his bride. About Christ returning to join with his bride, his people. When he comes to wrap up all of history and say to his church, you are mine. I love you, you are mine, you are glorious and radiant and brilliant. God is passionate about his church. There is a burning passion there. I think this is the main thing that tends to speak to me from this picture is the passion that God has for his gathered people. The key aspect of being the bride of Christ I believe is actually knowing his love and loving Jesus. And knowing that we do that together, that as the body, that our main duty is to be passionately, madly in love with Jesus and to be pursuing that relationship with him and going deeper with him. Knowing that this is a love that surpasses any other, that is fierce, uncompromising, wild, exciting, that Jesus is desiring his bride And we as his people, the church, are caught up in that love. Passionate about his bride. Most of you will have been to weddings at some point, you know, either recently or in the past, or you've been married. And uh, I did, actually, I tackled this with the youth group a while ago. I said, I put to them across the idea, I said, what's the most exciting part? What's the best part of a wedding? Uh, uh, and, and one of them immediately went, the food! <laughs> and I was like, okay, you, you, you failed to read my mind and get the answer that I needed in order to teach where I was going, but we will work with your answer. Um, <laughs> uh, and I believe that the wedding feast of the Lamb, we've got that covered, there is food. <laughs> But, but God acknowledges that need and that desire. The, the wedding feast, there is a party where God says, you are mine, let's eat. <laughs> but no, of the ceremony itself, I think there's one moment that most people often tend to acknowledge as the highlight of, of, of the ceremony, and that's when the bride enters and the groom first sees the bride. Yeah, you know that? Okay. That's the moment everyone's waiting for. That's the moment where everyone's got their cameras out. And also they're thinking, what's he going to do? Is he going to smile? Is he going to (laughs) cry? And it's all on film. You know what I've never seen in that moment? I've never seen indifference. Yeah? I've never seen a casual acknowledgement of, oh, oh, glad you can make it. (laughs) All right? Never seen that. Okay? I, I, I believe I've seen terror. Um, <laughs> which, in this metaphor, we could take as the fear of the Lord. Um, <laughs> but most of the time, I've just seen delight and anticipation and just sheer unparalleled joy. All right? I've had this. You know, when me and Joe got married... Uh, someone, I think someone tried to counsel us beforehand with this, that particularly daft advice that the groom needs to stay standing, looking at the front, to not watch the bride come in until the bride actually gets up to the front. I'm like, what the heck with that? I'm not being the only mug here that doesn't see my wife walk down the aisle. Like, like, 
Right, if any of the rest of you can face forward, I'm going to watch. <laughs> All right, that's that moment. I think Hannah, Mike, last wedding I think went to was, was you guys. And so when Hannah rocks up, hey, you see the look on Mike's face. Mike doesn't care that anyone else is there at that point because Hannah's turned up. Also, doesn't care that we're stood in the middle of a wood in the rain. Like, that, like, <laughs> like, that, that, that also doesn't seem to matter to Mike at that point because Hannah has turned up. And there's passion and there's anticipation. Never, never indifference. That's how God views the church. There's that passion, there's that joy, there's that anticipation of being together, of adventuring together, of building with one another. That's what God is looking for in this relationship with his people. Okay? And it's a bride, not a harem, not a series of casual girlfriends. Okay? God is looking for a mature, beautiful, committed relationship of his people towards him. But the great side of that is that God's commitment towards us outweighs anything that we can ever put into that equation. That God is ultimately faithful and that his passion towards us as his people is beyond any measure that we could ever know. I think there's the important thing to bring out that unity is important in this. That there's that togetherness. I said that um, God never said to, to Israel or to the church, I will be your God and you will be a series of individuals who happen to know me and don't relate to one another. No, he says, I will be your God and you will be my people, people, plural. It's united. Okay? God is passionately in love with you as his child. But there is more to it than that. You don't just get an individual relationship with him, great as that is. Okay? Donna touched on this a little bit last, last time when she said, I think that can work out fine if you're in darkest Peru. I don't know if she was thinking of Paddington at the time, but maybe. Um, but so, you know, if you... you know, if you're isolated, you can be on a desert island and you can enjoy God with you because he is with you wherever you are. But that's not the optimal situation with which God has designed you. So you don't just get an individual relationship with him. You are part of a covenant community that God is passionately in love with us, his people. And this is what he's always wanted. If you track that back through all of those pictures that I've shown you through the whole, that whole timeline of scripture where God is saying, Come to me, be my people, be together. Because as well as our individual relationship with God, which is of utmost importance, okay, you have to have that personal walk with God. But there is that joy of being in communal relationship with God and the greater experience of him and of one another that comes from that, of the greater revelation that comes from that. Um, and C.S. Lewis puts it well when he talks about friendship, when he talks about when you add different friends into the mix, it actually helps you to get more out of the friends that were already there. And he said, for example, you know, for meeting up, you know, he said, say me and Dave are hanging out, and then you know, 
Joe rocks up. I, I'm, I'm not suddenly worried that I've got less of, of Dave's time and thinking, oh, there's actually aspects of Dave that Joe, or if it's a particular Kate, we probably would know him better, um, uh, kind of, you know, are going to bring out of him that I previously haven't seen. In our encounters with God, there's aspects of God's character that other people show us. That's where the different gifts come into their wonderful display. Where there's aspects of God and his character and revelation that he is bringing through you that I wouldn't have experienced had you not turned up. All right? That I have missed out on part of the communal experience of God if other people aren't bringing their gifts into the mix with the ultimate aim of revealing him and making him known and making that revelation corporate as well. But it, and that actually grows, that's exponential in its nature. There is significance in us encountering God together. There's also a shared power that comes from that unity. That There is an authority that I believe God is wanting to bestow on his church. That unity and togetherness and I believe that greater idea of the identity that we have in Jesus allows us to bring the authority that we have to the church. Just as individually, knowing that you are a royal son or daughter of God allows you to step out in greater faith and greater measure and greater authority. Us, as the church, knowing that we are the bride of Christ allows us to take steps corporately with greater measure. Graham Cook, one of the pictures that he uses in the prophecy is symbolically is Esther, who was you know, the bride, who embraced her identity and took steps of great courage. And she saved a nation because she knew that she had access to the throne room. That was merely a, an earthly picture. Obviously, she was married to a human king in a foreign land. But there is that wonderful picture of if you're seeing the church as the bride of Christ, as Esther being an amazing example. Beautiful, humble, faithful, reliant on God, courageous. She took an amazingly big risk, risked her life. What for? For the sake of saving the people around her. There's that sense of saying, knowing as a church that we are royalty, that we are the bride of Christ, that we are treasured, it's allowing us to take those steps outwards. And there's the sense in which we can accomplish more together than we can apart. This building being one of, the, I think, the key examples of that. Right? We look at the resources of that. That would never have happened had we just remained scattered individuals. Now, there's always a balance to these equations, and, and they, it's, it's, again, not having the mentality that the Bride of Christ, that the purpose of the church is merely to have great meetings in this building, that we are here for the transformation of society as well. But you think, actually, the number of people that have come into this building and have been blessed and have experienced the kingdom through coming in here, be that bridge club or brownies or the Christmas celebration. How many of you were here at the Christmas celebration when there was standing room only as the community around us came into this building to experience the Christmas story and to be told the gospel? All right? 
For me, that was, I think, just one of the highlights of what we have used this building for, and we could not have done that as a series of individuals. That is something that we have pulled together. We've been faithful, we've been diligent, we've taken big steps, big risk. What, for, for the purpose of what? Yes, of gathering, of encountering God together and of knowing him, but also of reaching out with the love and power of Jesus. Because, yeah... We need to balance. I said about the balance. Why am I talking to you about the church being so important when we've actually spent a lot of time teaching you that the kingdom comes first? That previously we may have just thought that success was measured in having a great church and we'd neglected the gospel of the kingdom. Well, I'll put it to you that the church is the key vehicle through which the kingdom of God is delivered that we are a kingdom-minded church and that it is through the church that God is expanding his kingdom through gathered people who know the authority that they have in Jesus and their identity in him. Ephesians 3. His intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's an earthly display of spiritual realities. Through the church, the manifold wisdom of God will be displayed, not just on the earth, but in the spiritual realms, to the rulers and authorities in the heavenlies. God has big ambitions for his church. God is passionate about increasing, about spreading his kingdom. And we follow that absolutely. What we have downstairs on the plaque, on the front, Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God. That is what we are doing collectively as a people. That is what we are on board for. The vehicle in which God is commissioning us as this body is, as Eastgate, as the church, to be pursuing him wholeheartedly. And all he is calling us to as a church, so that we together, united as one, step out in big, ambitious steps of faith, to bring the kingdom to this area and beyond. I think that's one of the things that God's going to be just calling us into greater and greater as Eastgate is more and more of those steps of faith where we pull together and we say, God has spoken and he has spoken to us as a people and so we're going to be going for this and we're going to be going together because we are powerful. We are the bride of Christ and we're bringing the kingdom quote from Alan Scott I wrote a book called Scattered Saints uh, which again actually was mainly in the context of getting Christians and getting the church out into the city, out into the community of of an expectation of bringing the kingdom wherever we are of it not remaining in the building but of going out and transforming society and he acknowledges the essential nature of community and of being united and of being the church and being one because he says what God can do in individuals is exceptional what he does in community is exponential and I want us to come with that expectation that that's what God has for us that we have that exponential growth those opportunities where God is going to bring acceleration as we step out together it's time for the world to see the fullness of Jesus in the face of his bride. The other quote from Graham Cook.
It's time for the church to know the significance that it has of the innate dignity that it has of being God's treasured people, of being his beloved, of being his betrothed with power, of stepping out into that great adventure. It's time for the world to see the fullness of Jesus in the face of his bride. We get to represent him on the earth. And we get to represent him not just as his sent delegates, well, yeah, that's part of his picture, not just as his body that carried out his work on the earth, oh, yes, that's important, but as his beloved, who he is passionately in love with, we get to communicate the passion that God has through the church because he is passionate about seeing the lost saved. And that's one of the great invitations. Dad, I think I believe, touched on this, where our invitation, our gospel message has previously sometimes been individualistic, where we've said, hey, come, you can know God, you can have a personal relationship with him. We should be saying that, but there's also more. Come, know God, you have a personal relationship with him, and then you get to be welcomed into the community of the saints, the bride of Christ. And you get to go on a great adventure with us together. And it should be fun. All right. Marriage is typically this the start of a great adventure together and of increasing ambition. And so God declares that you do not need, at the moment, we, the church, we do not need to strive to become the bride of Christ. God has declared that over you. You can't earn that in the same way that you can't earn his salvation. He has declared his unwavering, unconditional love over us, his people. We need to learn to enjoy that. We need to learn to know more of that and to have a greater understanding of that. And then we need to step out as a response of that, going, God, we're your people. What next? What's the next adventure? Where are we going? Will you stand with me? Lord Jesus, we delight in being your beloved. <laughs> and we just declare our love for you, our wholehearted, committed, joyful love for you. We thank you that we are your people, that we are your bride, that you are madly in love with us, that you have great hopes for us, that you have great ambitions for us. God, I just ask that you will bring a greater revelation to us, the understanding of the status that we have in you together, of the blessing that we can be together, and of the authority that you give us for the blessing of the world. And just very simply, just time and time again, we just say we love you, we thank you that you are always with us, that you are wholeheartedly committed to us, and that your love to us is beyond measure. Amen.